Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm very excited to welcome Marty Moore, co-founder and CEO of Mesa Vaccines. Thanks for joining us today, Marty. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great. So Marty, to start off, we'd love to learn more about the arc of your career and how you got to what you're working on today. Well, that's a great question. It's been a, a long road with many twists and turns, and I'm happy to tell you the story. I would say the founding of Mesa was really about two co-founders dedicating themselves to work on a particular problem. I'll start some time ago, about 20 years ago, I was finishing my PhD in graduate school in virology. I was at the University of Michigan and I was working on a great model system. So this was an animal virus, not a human virus. And, you know, as a fifth year student, I stood up to give a talk on my dissertation at a conference and this semi-famous academic PI stood up and asked a question. Uh, actually, actually, it wasn't a question, it was a criticism. He said, great work, Marty. Next time, pick an important virus. You know, just cutting down five years of work. So I don't always take people's advice, but in this case, I did exactly what he said. I was like, okay, I'm going to take this guy's advice. And I went to the library at the University of Michigan Medical School and asked the question, what are the most important human viruses that impact human health, but have the least number of virologists working on them and the least amount of funding? Because I thought maybe that's where I could have an impact. And whatever that virus is, I'm going to dedicate myself to that one. I'm going to decide right now what I'm going to work on for my career. So I made this chart in Excel of you know morbidity, mortality, different viruses, and then the amount of NIH funding. And this was 2002. There were two outliers respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, and SARS, SARS-1, which had just emerged. Now, I think both both either one would have been a good choice in retrospect, but I chose RSV. And I went to a professor and I said, why are there so few people working on this virus? He said, well, the models are no good. Well, and I thought, well, we ought to work to improve the models. And that's what I set out to do. And then I studied RSV as a postdoc for five years at Vanderbilt. And then I set up my own lab at Emory, and I was on the faculty there for almost 10 years, nine and a half years. And I ended up leaving as a tenured associate professor. A little bit more on RSV. It surely is an important human virus. It's second only to malaria as a causative agent of death in children less than one year of age worldwide. There's a gut-wrenching video on YouTube that was put up by the Gates Foundation, and it describes how RSV kills about 700 children a day. In the United States, it hospitalizes 1% of babies every year, and it's a well-known important target, and it's considered to be a missing mandatory pediatric vaccine. So all of the work that we did at Vanderbilt and Emory really led to the development of the technology that was licensed at Mesa, right? So technology that was developed in my lab, and this is technology around how to generate uh, novel live attenuated vaccines. So I really transitioned from basic research in virology to vaccinology and and now biotech. And my great longtime colleague, Roderick Tang, co-founder of Mesa, he was similarly dedicated to RSV. He was um, at a company called Metamune, 
working on RSV vaccines for many years. So Roderick and I have a lot in common. I would say he's very stoic and committed. That's really how we got started. Actually, when I generated some preclinical data at Emory showing the promise of our technology, you know, I showed it to a few people, including at that time I was an advisor to a biotech in the Bay Area on RSV, a technical advisor. And that exposure to biotech impacted me a lot because when I showed the founder and CEO of that company our data, he said, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to quit your job and do this? Or are you going to stay in academia? And he encouraged me to pursue it in biotech because that would potentially have a greater chance of translating the technology and advancing it through clinical trials. I followed my passion. So that's how I ended up here. Out of curiosity, what was the experience like for you to take something that you had been working on in academia and effectively forming a company around it? What did the support system look like around you that enabled you to be able to do that in addition to Roderick, of course? Right. That's a great question. I would say it was really self-determination and grit. Other than the one biotech CEO founder, not that many people were encouraging me to do this, right? Because I had a tenured position at Emory. But I didn't really blink. You know, I thought, what is the best chance for this to get into clinical trials? And I decided to push it. And I think I've had an entrepreneurial bent from the start. And I I sort of just ended up in academia. So (laughs) it was actually a good fit for me. And now that I'm on this side, I'm very happy with this career choice. Actually, the name Mesa, it's the name of a star. And I've always been interested in astronomy and done some amateur astronomy. But it was actually a nod to my first company, which I started in college, which was an apartment cleaning business, which I used to support myself. And that was called Orion Cleaning. So I wanted to pay homage to those uh, humble beginnings. Yeah, I've always been an entrepreneur at heart, I think. Those experiences were really formative. And in fact, prior to that, I had dropped out of college and gone on this sort of adventure to see America. This was in the mid-90s, sort of pre-internet. And I took a year break from college and just rode freight trains all over the Western US and Canada and made my way up to Alaska. That experience also, I think, was formative. What I took away from it was appreciation for independence and you know, the courage to literally just venture out and do something new. I've kind of always carried that with me. Love it. Yeah, I, I bet it was a trip that built your self-confidence a lot to be able to go out and venture to go start your own startup. Thank you for sharing the nuance and the things that often get lost when people just go and found companies. What were the early stepping stones to your entrepreneurial journey? So that's great to hear. Yeah, the CEO of that other company I mentioned was influential for me. That company was very successful. And when I was on their advisory committee, I would come out a couple times a year. And, you know, I saw versus academia that scientists and biotech, this group, they were doing great work. The way they were collaborating and the way they were all aligned with the same goal. You know, I think in, in academia that sometimes that doesn't come across because the independent labs are doing their own thing. I think principal investigators get diluted across multiple fronts as they get more senior. So I was a little bit on the older side to undertake this biotech venture, right? Because I I was already tenured. I was kind of taking on new administrative roles at Emory. And one of the greatest things about coming over to biotech is that it's enabled me to really focus and get back to the science. What I tell people, my former colleagues at Emory and other universities is, You know, I used to get so many emails a day in academia. 
And you hear PIs talk about that all the time. Oh, I can't possibly answer your email. I get so many emails. I get a lot fewer emails now. And even though our you know, operating budget is much, much larger, and I think it's just a, a reflection of how focused we can be. I really appreciate that about biotech. Yeah, that's great, Marty. Out of curiosity, for someone that was new to biotech and coming from academia, would love to, if you're willing to share some of the challenges that you faced when you were raising capital to get Mesa up and running. That's a great question. So being a first-time CEO coming from academia, it definitely made it more challenging. But remember, I was fully committed, right? I jumped in with both feet. It never really concerned me overly, and I never had a plan B. And the way I looked at it was like molecular biology, like cloning, right? You screen colonies on a plate, and no matter how many you screen, you really you only need one. And when you get that one, it gets easier for a while, and then it gets harder again. You just you move on to the next hard thing. So that's how I view fundraising. So Marty, now I think that sets the stage really nicely for the important work that you're doing at Mesa Vaccine. So we'd love to hear what's going on at Mesa these days. Sure. What we're working on are live attenuated vaccines. And in the vaccine world, there are sort of two broad classes of vaccines, the live and then the non-replicating. You know, non-replicating would be proteins, mRNAs, some vectors, whereas live attenuated are live replicating weakened versions of those pathogens, like measles, mumps, rubella, smallpox, chickenpox vaccines. Live attenuated vaccines have been considered kind of an old school technology. They've been around forever, right? I mean, smallpox is one of the first vaccines, but they have great advantages. So they tend to give a very robust and broad immune response because they're actual you know, replicating microbes. And importantly, the durability of the immunity tends to be much greater than vaccines that are really just recombinant parts of the pathogen. So the durability of live attenuated vaccines is typically on the order of years. And for some, it can be decades. Also, live attenuated vaccines are often given in a single dose, not multiple prime and boost regimens. Because they replicate, you don't need to give a booster dose. But there have been some great challenges to live attenuated, which has kind of left them, I would say, stagnating for some time. And I think that what we're doing at Mesa is modernizing the live attenuated approach for vaccinology. And so let me explain how I think we're doing that. So one of the main challenges with live attenuated is a seesaw balance where you have to weaken the pathogen enough so that it's safe enough to give as a vaccine. The strain that you give of whatever it is needs to be safe. Therefore, it needs to be weak enough from its virulent form. The more you weaken it, the more you also weaken the immune response that it elicits. There's this balance between attenuation and the stimulation of the immune response. For some viruses like RSV, where live attenuated was attempted for decades, the balance just wasn't to be found. So that by the time you weakened it to the point where it was safe enough to give to a child, it no longer generated an immune response that looked like it was going to work. And so what we've done is we're taking, I would say, a synthetic biology approach where we specifically tailor viral genes in such a way to uncouple that seesaw so that the immune response doesn't depend on the attenuation. Our aim is to attenuate without compromising the immune response at all with the aim of providing natural-like immunity with a safe vaccine strain. And the way we do that 
is, you know, most viruses, they have ways of subverting or suppressing the immune response. And over many decades of basic research, right, all the journals fill up with mechanisms by which viruses do this. If we can generate a virus from a synthetic biology system, which we can do, then we can modify specifically those genes that suppress the immune response, take away the virus's ability to do that. And that way we can generate these vaccine strains that are very safe yet potently immunogenic, which hasn't previously been achieved with vaccines. So that's, that's what we're about. We're using the RSV construct as a platform now to deliver vaccines against multiple targets, like not only RSV, but SARS-CoV-2 and other respiratory viruses. All of our vaccines are given intranasally, not injected. And that's another important distinction. People want intranasal vaccines, but they can be challenging because for the nose is basically a very good filter. When you inject a protein, it goes you know, right into your circulation, gets picked up by antigen-presenting cells, you get a nice immune response. The job of the nose, one of its jobs is to, is to filter out those kind of particulates. But viruses have evolved the ability to penetrate the upper respiratory tract and infect and therefore give you an immune response. So a live attenuated vaccine given intranasally works. So, you know, intranasal approach, we think it's important for blocking transmission. And then that's why we're pushing our COVID-19 vaccine, which is currently in phase one. So the, our RSV vaccine is now in a phase two. Uh, we completed two phase ones this past year. Both were successful. And now we're in phase two, a human challenge study with RSV. And the COVID is, like I said, in phase one. And we hope that for our COVID vaccine, that we get a strong mucosal immune response in the nose and that this could be used as a next generation vaccine to really put a, a strong damper on transmission as sort of an end game strategy for COVID. Yeah, that sounds great, Marty. And thanks for sharing the exciting pipeline. We'd love to learn a bit more about your current team and how team building has gone for a first time CEO working on vaccines that fundamentally impact human health. You know, team building is quite challenging, yet is very important. And as a first-time CEO, I basically leveraged my experience as an academic PI, which has pros and cons. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I, um, I try to listen to my colleagues as much as possible. So for me, I have a few key parameters to hone in on. You know, I mentioned Roderick Tang and I, the two co-founders, that the spark for Mesa was about our mutual commitment to RSV as a problem in children. We've really, I would say, used being mission-driven as a key parameter for team building and hiring. And we've accumulated, I would say, RSV, virology, vaccine experts who are very mission-driven. That's very important to me because that's how I operate. That's what I understand. And that's the kind of culture that I want and that I think will carry through thick and thin, right, when things get tough. So assuming the candidates that you're looking at are well-qualified, have the right background, are available, all of that checks out. For me, the first question is, are they mission-driven? A second thing, which may, I don't know how you're going to think about this or not, but I prefer to work with people who are just fundamentally nice. That can be a little bit tricky, but you know, when I was choosing my PhD advisor, my postdoc advisor, these were important factors, and that panned out for me because they supported me in my long-term career. And so one of the things that I took away from academia is supporting each other and supporting our careers, whether people are at Mesa or they've moved on, right? Because we're not always going to be at Mesa. Not everyone who's in the company now is going to continue to be. 
but I want to be committed to those people long-term because they were here helping me now. And I think, you know, for trying to find people who are very qualified, high quality, the best candidates who are also mission-driven, if they're fundamentally nice, wow, that's, that's really, that's it for me because, um, you know, life is short, biotech is hard, and we do have choices with the type of people that we work with, and it's better to be around nice people. And also, you know, people say when the going gets tough, you know, the tough get going. Well, sometimes the tough are the first to cave. And if you have a team that's both mission-driven and nice, they support each other. We aim to be transparent, admit mistakes, talk about them, you know, me included, and, you know, try to be good mentors and mentees to each other in our respective areas of expertise. So as a first-time CEO, I have to acknowledge what are the things I know and what are the things I don't know. If I can talk to you openly about that, then I'm hiring you, let's say, you know, as a clinops ops person, you can be transparent to me about what you know and what you don't know. And I think that's how um, we operate as a team. And, you know, we, we closed Series A September 2019. We've filed two INDs. We've done two trials. We're in a third. And I think a lot of those achievements are due to our culture and how we've um, built this team. Great progress in a, in a short period of time. Thank you. Um, on the topic of culture, I'm curious during the pandemic, if you've noticed any differences in terms of ability to collaborate or any, any learnings that you're willing to share in this new remote environment, what has been working well for you from a team building and cultural perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. And it has been hard. As a young company, we had these dreams about the events we were going to do, you know, how we were going to be getting together. And none of that happened. So we had to rely, really rely on our own commitments to goals and vision to carry on, right? We weren't able to engineer that togetherness and we had to just rely on Zoom like everybody else. And it has been hard. Now, because we added a COVID program to our RSV program, and we have another program on a related virus called metanumovirus. So adding COVID as a third program, it opened up our ability to rent a new space, which we did during the pandemic. We were able to get the permits for the renovation because we were working on COVID. We have, I guess your podcast listeners won't be able to see it, but I'm in my office at work. Now I realize it's quite a luxury compared to so many people who've been stuck at home. So we, you know, we are operating in the lab pretty much at full capacity. And with that background, I'd love to hear your general perspective on vaccine development and Obviously, that is at the forefront of what's going on across biotech right now. And there's, there's tremendous coverage of vaccine development and the side effects associated with various different vaccines, et cetera. So I'd love to hear from someone that's, that's in your seat, your thoughts on overall vaccine development and the import of it. What we're seeing now is our steps in the right direction in terms of interest in vaccine, acknowledgement of the importance of vaccines, particularly against infectious diseases, where, you know, when we were out raising Series A, that wasn't the case. And vaccines haven't been at the top of the list for investors. And there are a myriad of reasons for that. I mean, many of the big targets like RSV and infectious disease, they're tough problems and people have tried and failed. So there's that. What we see now are incredible successes with platforms, I would say. I mean, I think what we've learned is, you know, these platform technologies, they can pay off over the long term, right? If you think about mRNA, adenovirus vectors, you know, I think that the mRNA delivery is, is important. And this was really a pivot. What was going on was 
there was application more in gene therapies, oncology, and then the realization, hey, wait, we can take on SARS-CoV-2. Boy, they did with a lot of help from the government as well. So it's an amazing scientific achievement, what has been done in a short amount of time, breaking all kinds of records in vaccinology in terms of speed of preclinical development, clinical development, and the actions of the regulators as well. It's great to see. However, there's a lot more to do. And I think, you know, we have to remember that historically, every civilization has just been hammered and shaped by infectious diseases, right? And not a good way. And so we shouldn't be too surprised that this is happening. And it will happen again. It will continue to happen. So we need to continue to support and invest in technologies that can come to aid, like these platform technologies. I mean, obviously, Mesa also has a platform technology. So I'm biased. But yeah. yeah. It's bittersweet because I feel like vaccinology has made great advancements and is being appreciated. On the other hand, as a society, we're going backwards, right? We're just kind of circling the drain right now. I mean, my, I have kids. My son said the other day, hey, our generation is going to be known as the Zoomers. And that's pretty sad, right? As a biotech community, well, we have to get back to where we were before, before we can really think about how we can advance society. You know, we have to try to get society back to where it started, a few, where it was a couple of years ago. It's a great reminder that you know, once we're hopefully on the other side of the current pandemic, that the important work in terms of vaccine development continues and we don't lose sight of exactly what you just said. Marty, out of curiosity, how did you initially get interested in virology? You know, as a, um, a rotation graduate student, my PhD is actually in genetics, and I did my PhD in a virology lab. You know, viruses are really elegant organisms, but they're also very dissectable. In order to try to really understand the life cycle, the natural history of an organism, start small, right? <laughs> and yet they're still so difficult to understand. So that, that's what interested me about um, viruses in general, that you know, we could take a genetic approach, um, not only to understand the function of individual genes, but to really understand the organism itself. Here we are doing that now at Mesa, you know, with our genetic system for RSV, where we're uh, literally recoding the genome to get the desired traits that we want. Great. And Marty, to, to wrap up, I would love to hear if you've had a chance to reflect on one thing that as you were thinking about making the transition from academia to biotech entrepreneur for our listeners that are thinking about making similar moves, one thing that you, or one piece of advice that you would tell your, your younger self? Oh, yes. So my piece of advice is absolutely forget about job stability as a parameter. Don't use that for your list of pros and cons that you're going to use to choose what position you take, because there really isn't any for tenured professors who depend on grants in pharma, in biotech. Just follow your passion. Pick a problem that you want to work on and you know, put 10 years into it. That's my advice. Excellent. Well, on that note, Marty, thank you for sharing your journey and the very important work that you and your colleagues are doing at Mesa. We look forward to continuing to follow your progress and wish you continued success. Thanks. I appreciate being here. It was great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.